I'm not sure about you, but I, I love stories in which there is a surprise that takes place. Okay, it's, it's almost like a, an athlete who comes off the bench that you did not anticipate being an important part of the team and they win the game. Okay, it's almost like a teenage David who goes toe-to-toe with Goliath, ready to do battle. And it is this out-of-nowhere teenager who raises up to take down this mighty warrior. Or the story of Sloth for Telly taking down his own family to protect the Goonies. I mean, it's <laughs> these surprises that take place that you never see happening. I love these stories where there's a change, there's a pivot. Well, when we get to the life of Moses, we meet a man who has this providential life of so many twists and turns that no one would have expected him to be Israel's deliverer from Egypt. But when we get to Acts chapter 7, Stephen highlights in his sermon, Moses, how he was rejected by Israel, but he was their deliverer. And yet he was also the deliverer who was pointing to an even greater deliverer who would one day come. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. We're going through the book of Acts together as a faith family. We're seeing the, the work of God through the early church. That after Jesus ascended up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God the Father, we see where the Holy Spirit falls at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. The early church is born. The gospel's going forth. Thousands of people are coming to faith in Christ. We've already seen persecution arise against the early church. But then we are introduced to this man named Stephen. Stephen is a man in the early church who is caring for widows. He is a passionate follower of Jesus. He's full of the spirit and wisdom. He's so effective at preaching that they have to make up accusations against him to shut him up. And they, all these accusations that are made up, these lies that are lobbed at him, are, made, are, are forcing him to stand before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the Jewish high court. It's about 70 men and the high priest, and they have the authority to kill Stephen. These men have the authority to stone him to death. And we'll see in a couple of weeks when we get to the end of chapter 7 where that's actually going to take place. But here he is standing before this semicircle of men who have authority to take him down. And he begins his sermon before them with the life and ministry of Abraham, a man whom God promised soil and sons, descendants and land. But then we see where he pivots and he goes into the life of Joseph, a man who was betrayed by his own brothers, a man who suffered greatly under the hand of his own family. And yet God providentially raised him up to be number two over all of Egypt. But then we see Stephen pivot again and he focuses in on the life and ministry of Moses. And this is where we pick up in Acts chapter 7, beginning with verse 17. As the time was approaching to fulfill the promise that God had made to Abraham, the people flourished and multiplied in Egypt until a different king who did not know Joseph ruled over Egypt. He dealt deceitfully with our race, oppressed our ancestors by making them abandon their infants outside so that they wouldn't survive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was cared for in his father's home for three months. When he was put outside, Pharaoh's daughter adopted and raised him as her own son. So Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his speech and actions. 
When he was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. When he saw one of them being mistreated, he came to his rescue and avenged the oppressed man by striking down the Egyptian. He assumed his people would understand that God would give them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. The next day, he showed up while they were fighting and tried to reconcile them peacefully, saying, Men, your brothers, why are you mistreating each other? But the one who was mistreating his neighbor pushed Moses aside, saying, Who appointed you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me the same way you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When he heard this, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. As he was approaching to look at it, the voice of the Lord came, I am the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Moses began to tremble and did not dare to look. The Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, because the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected when they said, Who appointed you a ruler and a judge? This one God sent as a ruler and a deliverer through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out and performed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, at the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers and sisters. He is the one who was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. He received living oracles to give to us. Stephen is on trial for his life. His future is hanging in the balance. And so in his defense before his Jewish audience, he gives the largest portion of his sermon before the Sanhedrin dedicated to the person and work of Moses. Now, if you go back and read Deuteronomy 34, you discover that Moses died at the age of 120. Well, what Stephen does here in his sermon is he breaks down Moses' life into three sections, three 40-year sections. We see the first 40 years where he's growing up in Pharaoh's house in Egypt. The second 40 years where he's rejected by his own people and he runs to Midian. We see the third 40 years where he's leading God's people out of slavery in Egypt. This morning, I want you to notice in the text how God providentially works in and through Moses' life, how he points to Jesus and then what this means for us. The first thing I want you to see in the text, this first 40 years of Moses, we see that God is faithful to keep his promises even when circumstances appear dire. Hundreds of years have gone by since Jacob and his family moved south to Egypt to be saved from the, the famine that had arrived. Joseph and the family of 70 plus that came with Jacob has now multiplied significantly. But a new king has risen up in Egypt and he is forgotten and has no knowledge of Joseph and how God used him to save the nation of Egypt. This new Pharaoh hated how proliferous Israel had become. They had multiplied like jackrabbits throughout the nation. And like most kings, he wants to protect his power. He wants to protect his authority. He wants to protect his position. And so what does he do? He seeks to persecute those who rise up against him. 
The sheer size of Israel in Egypt makes Pharaoh uneasy. So he commands that all baby boys be thrown into the Nile River. What we see is a murderous king who is threatened and he takes out the babies. Now you can imagine how helpless, defenseless Israel felt. They didn't have land. They didn't have a military. They didn't have weapons to defend themselves. They're now slaves to this king and they're being forced to throw their baby boys out into a river where they will be drowned or devoured by wildlife and there's nothing they can do about it. Now you can imagine the fear, the panic, the anger, the angst over this trial that they're facing and yet God was up to something. God had a deliverer already in mind, one who would be born under the threat of this evil king. And irony of ironies, the man who would overthrow Egypt was, verse 21, being raised under Pharaoh's own roof. Moses' parents put him in the river. Pharaoh's daughter scoops him out, adopts him, raises him as her own. He would be educated in all wisdom of Egypt, the finest of educations. He would grow to be powerful in speech and in actions. And God is faithful to keep his promise. For when things look terrible and it looks like evil's taken over, God is still at work behind the scenes. Now, it's important to note, y'all, that we cannot look at our circumstances and presume that God is like what our life is like. There are many who will go through hardship and experiences in this life, and they will presume that God is unjust. He's not fair because life is hard. Hear me on this. We must interpret God's actions through the lens of his character. We must understand the experiences that you go through in life. It's not based upon what you feel that he is like. He is revealing himself in scripture through his character. And so we interpret our experiences in light of who he is. Here are the people of Israel. They're slaves. Their baby boys are being murdered. They're experiencing injustice. Has God forgotten them? No. Does God care? Yes. So what is God doing? He's up to something bigger than they can see. You see, we have to interpret God's actions in light of God's character, not the other way around. Some people will seek to make God like soft clay and try to form him and shape him into an image that agrees with them and makes sense in their mind. Hear me in this. God is God whether you submit to him and agree with him or not. He is who he is and he does not change. His character is settled He is who he is. Therefore, when you go through hardship in life, when you face trial and difficulty, you have to interpret your experiences in light of who he is. Right here, we see it wouldn't be for another 80 years that God's people would experience relief and rescue. But God's plan was already in motion. For Moses was born under the terror of an evil dictator who wanted him dead, and yet hiding in plain sight within the confines of Pharaoh's palace is adopted by the king's daughter, verse 22, receiving the best education possible, is Israel's deliverer. You see, God's sovereign purpose for raising up Moses was ultimately to point forward to another deliverer. 
You see, Moses, who's delivering Egypt, or delivering Israel in the heart of Egypt, is just a forerunner. He is a type of Christ because there would one day come another. For it would be Jesus who was born under the terror of an evil King Herod who wanted to kill him. Jesus was cared for and arrested by an adopted father in Joseph. They would flee to Egypt where he would be raised, where Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. And decades later, he would give God's people relief and rescue through God's predetermined plan of salvation. That he would come to deliver God's people from slavery to sin and take us towards a land flowing with milk and honey. You see, Jesus is our rescuer and deliverer who saves us from sin and death through his shed blood on the cross. You and I are broken and we need someone who can rescue us, someone who can deliver us. We need a savior. Enter Jesus of Nazareth, the one who knows everything about you. He knows your past. He knows your heart. He knows the words of your mouth before you say them, the attitudes of your heart. And yet he still loves you. You see, God demonstrates his own love for you in this, that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God knew that in your heart you would rebel against him, and yet he still loves you, and he has not given up on you. He sent forth his son Jesus to pay the price that you deserved, that the death that you deserved was placed upon Christ, so that when you turn from your sin and you trust in Christ, he will receive you. This is the good news of the gospel of a crucified Savior who doesn't stay dead. For the Bible says that he was placed into a borrowed tomb for three days. And on the third day, he comes back to life, defeating sin, death, hell, and the grave. And anybody and everybody who turns from sin and trusts in Christ by faith, you will be received by God forever. This is the gospel that we rally around. This is what Christ came to do, was to set you free. He came to deliver you. He came to set you free from sin, to set you free from death, to set you free from hell, to set you free from judgment. And so Jesus goes and he takes your death, he takes your sin, he takes your hell, he takes your judgment at the cross. So therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For you have been set free through the blood of Jesus Christ. Maybe today you're facing what feels like an impossible situation. You got terrible news from the doctor. Maybe your marriage is just not in a good place. Maybe you have someone you love who's just walking in unrepentant sin. Maybe your life is just full of stress and depression and anxiety and you're struggling. Can I even make it another day? Hear me today. Do not be discouraged. Do not grow weary, for God keeps his promises. For we see that just as Israel was struggling under persecution and trial and difficulty, they're wondering, are we going to make it? Is there going to be a deliverer? Is there going to be someone who's going to come and save us? We know that at the proper time, eventually God sent a deliverer in Moses. And for us, God sent an even greater deliverer in the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who was beautiful in God's sight. The one who grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And though there are today evil dictators who do not know Jesus in the same way that there was a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph, Jesus is still king and Lord over them all. You see, God has promised us a future with no more suffering, y'all. 
And the longer I live this life, the more I long for and I anticipate the future day in which sin and suffering and death are no more. It's coming, y'all. It's coming. You keep your eyes fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we wait for our final salvation, as we anticipate the return of Christ where he comes back to call back his bride, his church, to bring us to himself, he's still at work right now. Behind the scenes, working in ways that you won't see on social media or on the news channels, Jesus is at work in Belizean citrus fields and across the African savanna and underground China in the factories of Asia and in the boardrooms and the schoolrooms of the United States. He is at work. And what appears as if things are falling apart, he's behind the scenes working, drawing men and women and boys and girls to faith in himself. He is at work. And what we can trust is that though we go through hardship and difficulty in this life, though you are hurting, do not grow discouraged. God keeps his promises, even when circumstances appear dire. The second thing that Stephen tells the Sanhedrin is he points to Moses' second 40 years, that God is faithful to call imperfect people to accomplish his greater purposes. Stephen points to the moment, verse 23, when Moses goes out of the palace, he goes out of his privileged life, and he visits his own people. And when he sees one of his own people being mistreated by an Egyptian, he kills the Egyptian. The next day, he goes back out, and he sees two Israelites fighting, and he separates the fight. He's like, guys, why are you fighting? And they're like, hey, are you going to kill us the same way you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Ruh-roh. Moses has been found out. So what does he do? He runs. He flees to Midian, about 300 miles southeast. And it's there that he lived and became a shepherd. And during that 40 years, he married a North African girl named Zipporah. They had two sons. And for four decades, they, he lived in exile, fearful of Pharaoh's wrath for the murder, bearing the weight of shame. You know, one of the things I love about Scripture is it doesn't gloss over the sins and failures of God's people. That when you and I study the Scriptures, we see a lot of people who are flawed and broken. And yet God in His kindness still uses them. It's amazing as you look at all these great heroes of the faith, all of them, save one, are tremendously broken. Can I give you a quick list? Noah got drunk. Abraham lied about his wife. Isaac was a passive leader in his home. Jacob was constantly lying and deceiving. David was a murderer, adulterer, and terrible father. Solomon was a polygamist. Gideon was fearful. Elijah would get depressed and suicidal. Jonah ran from God. Peter denied Jesus three times. The 11 disciples ran away from Jesus at his darkest hour. Martha was a worrier. Mary Magdalene was demon-possessed. The Samaritan woman was a five-time divorcee living with her boyfriend. Thomas was a doubter. Zacchaeus was a greedy short man. Paul was a murderer. And we see in verse 24, Moses was also a murderer. But you know, one of the beautiful realities of the gospel is that your past does not define your future. 
Your past does not define your future. If you are hidden in Christ, though your sins are many, they are plunged beneath the sea of God's forgetfulness through the blood of Jesus Christ. And God redeems your life. He takes all of your failures and all of your sins and all the ways that you've rebelled against him. He turns them around for your good and the fame of his name. And though your past may be filled with all kinds of brokenness and shame, that if your thought life was put up on these screens for all to see, you'd be crawling out of here in embarrassment. If a laundry list of all of your actions and words that you've ever said in your life are laid bare before the public on social media, you would hang your head in shame. Jesus draws near to you and he lifts your head and says, look at me. I will not shame you. I will not rub your past in your face. I'm not a God who shames his children. I'm a God who shows great love towards you. And though your sin was awful, so was the cross. And at the cross, I purchased your past. I've made a way through my substitutionary death to take your place so that you don't have to and you can walk out of this room head held high, full of confidence, not because of you, but because of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Our hope is in Jesus, that your past does not define your future. And what's beautiful as we study the scriptures, we see a lot of broken people just like us. People like me and you who've made all kinds of failures and mistakes and boneheaded decisions, and yet we see the grace of Jesus is always greater. You see, God loves to call imperfect people to display his glory. And the weaker we are, the stronger he is. It's the beauty of what God does in the gospel. You see, our weakness is God's gentle and faithful reminder that we're not him, but it's also one of God's ways of displaying his power, that Jesus, the infinitely strong one, is the one who draws near to us in our imperfections and sins and brokenness, and he uses our weaknesses as a stepping stone to display his power and glory. Now, as followers of Jesus, I believe that, at least for me, in one day, I can waver between two types of pride. One type of pride is when I'm walking around thinking, I'm awesome. A little swagger in my step, things are going well, everything's up and to the right. That's pride. But there's another side. There's times in which I feel like I'm a nobody, that I'm a failure, that I let my family or my church or my God down. There's times where I just feel like a total reject. That's also pride because I'm looking at myself. Both I'm awesome and I'm a nobody are pride. So what's the answer? Jesus. We come to Jesus in which we say, I'm not awesome, Jesus, you alone are awesome. And Jesus, I'm not a nobody because you belong to me and I belong to you and you are inside of me now for now and forever. And so I, I'm going to flee pride in the arrogance and the self-deprecation and I'm going to come to Jesus and find my worth and value in him who alone is awesome and who also lives inside of me both now and forever. And when I turn away from my self-sufficiency, when I turn away from my own strength and I rest in his strength, it's then that his power is on display. It's in those moments when you say, God, I can't do this. He's like, great, that's exactly where I want you. 
I want you to realize that you can't do this on your own. You desperately need me. I am the Lord who will be with you. I am the one who will walk through this with you. Have you ever been called to do something which your response is, I I can't. There's no way I can do this. I'm not smart enough. I'm not strong enough. I don't have enough money. I'm not attractive. There's no way I can do what you're telling me to do. And God's like, that's exactly where I need you. Or you realize that you can't do it on your own. You got to trust me. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge me. I'll direct your path. It's the Lord who walks with you and gives you grace. Jesus is your strength. Jesus is your sufficiency. Jesus will enable you by the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish his purposes that he has for you to do. Question, do you want God to use your life? Then take your eyes off yourself and fix them on Jesus. That's the way that God can use your life is when you come to the end of your rope and say, I can't, and that's where God says, I'll take it from here. You take your eyes off yourself and you fix your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is perfect, the one who does not need you, but he wants you. And he invites you to join him on what he is doing in the world. You see, over and over throughout the scriptures, we're continually given examples of imperfect kings, imperfect priests, imperfect prophets, imperfect leaders. And every failed leader is God's reminder that they are not the Messiah. You see, Jesus alone is the perfect prophet, perfect priest, perfect king perfect savior, perfect leader, and perfect friends. And today as followers of Jesus, let us be careful that there is only one that we put up on a pedestal, the Lord Jesus Christ. We look to him for he is the lo- alone is the perfect savior who can save us from sin and death. He alone is the one who is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Jesus is the one who will be faithful and will keep you even to the very end of the age. Jesus is the one who will be with you when you're laying on your deathbed and not for a second will he leave you. Promises I'll be with you every step of the way. The one who is faithful. You see, everyone else we put on a pedestal at feet of clay. But at the same time, what's so amazing to me is that God still uses broken, imperfect people to point to the perfect one. Paul said it like this in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, but we have this treasure, it's Jesus, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You see, the beauty of the gospel is that the glory of God in the face of Jesus now lives right here. That if you are in Christ, if you've put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he lives in you. He's in, in, in you. We are jars of clay. We're common, we're breakable, we're imperfect. And yet Jesus takes up residence in these jars of clay, these broken lives that we have to display his glory and power. That God loves to take someone like you who doesn't have a great resume, who spiritually doesn't have it all together, 
who makes all kinds of mistakes and bad decisions, and yet he says, let me show you my power. I'm going to come and take up residence in your life. And when you trust not in yourself, but in me, I will empower you to go and live out and display the gospel that points to me. You may think, man, there's no way God can ever use me. Remember, it's not you. It's Christ in you. That's where you get your power. God is faithful to call imperfect people to accomplish his greater purposes. Imperfect people like Moses and imperfect people like you. Third thing we see in the text. We see Moses' third 40 years. God is faithful to raise up a deliverer to save his people. After 40 years in Midian, God appears to Moses through a burning bush. And it's there that God reveals his personal name to Moses. His name is I am who I am. Yahweh, Jehovah. I am revealing who I am. This is my name. You fast forward to the New Testament and Jesus will regularly refer to himself as I am. Meaning the voice of God in Exodus chapter 3 is Jesus who's telling Moses all about himself. That I am who I am. And in Jesus, the I am takes on skin and bone. And he lives among God's people. He lives a perfect, sinless life that we couldn't live. And he dies the death that we deserve. This is who God reveals in the person and work of Jesus. That God is faithful to raise up a deliverer. And it was at the burning bush that God called out Moses to be his man, to lead God's people out of captivity. And with his sandals off and his face planted on the ground, Moses heard and responded to the call of God. At this Moses, he would be rejected over and over and over by God's people. And though he would lead them out and perform these miracles, he would perform the 10 plagues, he would bring water from a rock, he would split the Red Sea, he would perform these miracles, the people would continually reject him as their deliverer. And yet Moses knew, verse 37, that there would come another that there is a prophet like me whom God is going to raise up. You see, Jesus Christ is the true and greater Moses who delivers God's people out of slavery to sin and into the land of promise. You see, Moses was born under a murderous, murderous dictator. Jesus was born under a murderous dictator. Moses performed miracles. Well, Jesus is the ultimate miracle worker. Moses was a shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. Moses delivered God's people from slavery, but Jesus is the deliverer of God's people from slavery to sin. Moses mediates between God and Israel, but Jesus is the true and greater mediator between God and his people. Moses was a prophet who spoke for God. Well, Jesus is the true and greater prophet who speaks God's messages right into the hearts of his people. Moses led God's people to the brink of the promised land. And yet Jesus is the true and greater leader who leads God's people to a better future in a new kingdom. Moses was rejected by God's people. Well, Jesus was rejected and despised by Israel. Indeed, the very people that Stephen is standing in front of. And this is Stephen's ultimate point. Israel keeps rejecting the prophets. And you have rejected the very one that they've been pointing you to. 
For it was months earlier that you rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this is the one whom they've been pointing to. The prophets have been pointing to Jesus. Moses was pointing to Jesus. And just as they rejected Joseph, just as they rejected Moses, just as they rejected the prophets, you rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. So Kenneth, what are you calling us to? What's your impact point? It's this. Receive Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life. For he is the unexpected deliverer who saves all who trust in him. You see, Jesus was rejected so that you would be accepted. Jesus is the one who was cast out so that you could be brought in. Jesus is the one who gladly died so that in him you would live. This is the love that God has for you in Jesus Christ. That Jesus takes the punishment that you deserve so that you don't have to. And he invites you and he invites me to turn away from ourselves, turn away from our own pride, our own path, to humble ourselves and to come to him and to receive him, to trust in him. For he is the savior that nobody saw coming. He is the savior who came from nowhere, Nazareth who grew up underneath the nose of Caesar and Rome, and he would be the Savior who would deliver God's people, that anybody and everybody who trusts in him, you'll be saved from sin and death. 